Today's uh, scripture reading is from the book of Revelation. We'll be reading from chapter 21, the first seven verses. Revelation 21, starting with verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. My name is Bruce O'Neill, and I'm the senior pastor here. And um, when I first was introduced that way, I was in my 30s, and I thought, who in the world are they talking to as a senior? Well, what that means is I am the lead pastor, and one of my major responsibilities is to herald or declare the gospel to us. And so I'm going to do that from uh, this text this morning. And in preparing our hearts, I do want to talk about why we like stories. Stories have a way of speaking to our hearts in a way that principles or declarative statements uh, cannot touch. We love uh, stories because they have uh, rich uh, characters, they have a, a plot where at some point things get uh, so dark, so hopeless that when the rescue comes, we cheer. And then there's a happily ever after. And because of that, I think we love stories. We uh, love stories because we were created in the image of a storytelling God who loves to tell stories himself. Why are stories like that? Why, why do they move us? Well, I think it's because stories speak to our longings. Do you, do you ever wonder why you long to last? Why you want something to go on beyond your time here on earth? Do you ever wonder why nothing ever truly satisfies? As soon as you have a great meal, within a few hours you want to eat again. Do you ever wonder why you long for a place where there's no more pain and no more loss and no more suffering? A place where joy and happiness don't come in moments, but always. Do you ever wonder why stories about Camelot and Narnia, places like the enchanted kingdom in Disney World, speaks to our hearts? It speaks to a longing for a place that is different than here. The Bible tells us why that's so. 
The Bible says that your personal story, your individual story, can't answer the questions of longing, of lasting, of satisfaction, of a happily ever after. So we need a grander story that explains our story when we put our story underneath that story. What I would call a merit, a, 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 a merit of, na- I can't even do it. Can you do it? Thank you. Meta narrative. That is an overarching story that explains our individual stories. We've all got stories and we've got things that have characters and plots and what we hope to be a happily ever after, but in and of itself, it needs a grander story, a bigger idea. So what is the story that the Bible tells? Our story, the overarching story, the big story, starts with these words, in the beginning, God. And therefore, the very first character is introduced to us, God, who was there before there was a beginning. And then he brought everything into being by creating it. And then he makes a moral judgment on his creation. He calls it good. A moral judgment. But then we're introduced to the second character of the story of the Bible. Man, Adam and Eve, the very first two people on the planet. And he pronounces a moral judgment on them. He calls them good. And then he tells man, you have a place. You can belong. It's the Garden of Eden. But not only does he give them a place, he gives them a purpose. And the purpose is to rule and cultivate this creation on his behalf. And then he gave them a relationship not only with each other, but also with him. In the cool of the day, in the dawn of time, God came and showed up and had fellowship with his creatures. I think that's important because it didn't stay that way. As good as things were, the next scene is things get dark and full of despair as man and woman do not stay good. The third character is introduced into our story. The third character for us is Satan. And he tells a lie to man and woman and they believed the lie. Well, what's the lie? The lie is that God cannot be trusted because he doesn't know what's best for you. That if you really want to know what's best for you, you can know what God knows. And mankind falls from good to being very ashamed. Ashamed of what he has done, of what he has become. And they try to cover up that shame with fig leaves, but they are only metaphors for the real hiding that we have from God and from each other and even from ourselves. And their sin ruins everything. Their lives and the lives of their children are now marked by loss and pain and even death. But not only is are their lives affected by this sin, but also the entire world in which we live, suffers and full of frustration. That's why uh, nothing seems to work. You buy a car and as soon as you drive it off the lot, it loses thousands of dollars of value. It is so frustrating. The minute you buy a car and it begins to disintegrate before your very eyes. So many of our things, children that start out 
in life so well don't end so well. Everything is frustrating. That's why C.S. Lewis in the Narnia tale says it's, it's always winter, but never Christmas. The Bible says a darkness falls over man's heart and covers the entire earth. And so we ask the question in the story, is there any hope? Have we moved to the point in the story where man is hopeless without a rescue? And the answer to that question is yes. Enter the fourth character in our story, a savior. Roman writers used to complain about Greeks that Greek playwrights would bring a god onto the stage too soon. And they would say that they... You don't bring a God onto the stage until things are so hopeless that only a God can rescue man from his problems. And that's the fourth character, Jesus. He's fully God and he's fully man because it takes both of them in one being, two natures, in order to save mankind. C.S. Lewis will put it this way. In the manger long ago... Someone was born that was bigger than the whole world. See, we want to make Jesus into just a baby. But that baby is also fully God. Because he came to save the world. Because a manger ends in a cross. We are forgiven because Jesus took our judgment. We receive favor because Jesus took our disfavor. We have received grace because Jesus took our disgrace. And to prove that it worked, to prove that we have received that forgiveness, that we have been accepted, that we are the children of God, Jesus rose from the dead. And if that was the end of the story, that would be good enough. But we would still long for a place. We would still long for a world where there's no pain, no tears, no suffering, no loss, no death. And so we need a happily ever after. And that's the fourth chapter of this story that the Bible tells that there really is. Look at verse five. And he who was seated on the throne, behold, I am making all things new. We are heading to a place where everything is new, a new world, a new uh, a home and a new life. And our tendency is to think of that as only in the future. That it has no shadow, no foretaste, no appetizer in the present world. And so we gut it out here. We endure here to get there rather than taking the principles of the future and bringing them into the present. Seeking the renewal of all things here and now. I just want you to know that there was a time, once upon a time, I didn't believe what I am telling you this morning. I was a secularist. I was someone who thought of God as a clock maker, who, who made the clock, built the clock, wound it up, and then sat back and watched it go. Because that was the only way I could explain my own suffering, the suffering of my family. That God was disinterested and uninvolved in his creation. Because if he was truly interested, if he was truly involved, if he truly cared, then why didn't he do something about it? But this story makes sense. 
the Holy Spirit has opened my heart to recognize that these words are trustworthy and true. It reminds me of one of my very favorite movies. Sorry, guys, it's a romance movie. I'm sure you can get it on Netflix. It's called Fifty First Dates. And I like the movie for this reason, because it's so biblical. As you knew, I would tie it. In Fifty First Date, Lucy has had a car accident years ago on October the uh, 13th. And because of that, she has no short-term memory. And so what her family has done to keep her from having traumatic experiences over and over again, every day is exactly like the day on October the 13th to give her comfort and assurance that everything she did on that day, she does over again because it's the last day she can remember. And so that brings her great comfort until she meets Henry. And Henry is going to be the love of her life, at least for the day. And because Henry wants to love her, he and he wants her to remember his love for her, he makes a videotape. This kind of gives you a little age to this movie. We don't do videotaping anymore. But he makes a videotape, and he puts a note by her bedside so that every morning she wakes up, she watches that videotape, and it brings her up to date with their love life, the fact that they're in love, that he even exists because he didn't exist in her world before October the 13th. And that's how the movie plays out. Their happily ever after is running this tape. That's the way this story has to be told. Because we forget parts of the story as soon as it's told. And when enough parts are forgotten, and if we are not reminded of the parts uh, that we have forgotten, then we forget the whole story. And the story isn't just a story. The story impacts how we live and how we see the world and what we hope for in the ending. And when things come to us in pieces and we don't remember, then our lives don't change. And so we need every Sunday to be that videotape of replaying the story because we are have a propensity to forget. Just as Lucy had short-term memory, so do we. Short-term memory loss about the gospel. And so with that, I just want you to see before we go to the Lord's Supper that there are three areas in which are getting this renewal in this passage. The first is a new world. Secondly, uh, a new home. And thirdly, a new life. First, the, the new world. Look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The first question that we have to ask of that verse is, will it be really new? That is, we know in verse 5, he says that that Jesus is going to return, and when he comes, he's going to make all things new. But it also says here that the old things are going to pass away, and the new things are going to come. Which is it? Is he going to make old things new or is he going to replace old things? Which does he mean? And I would say for centuries now, the church has believed primarily that Jesus is going to wipe out everything that is and make all new things. We love new toys. 
And because we love new cars, new homes, new things, we think that's the way in which this new world is going to be. The problem is that's not the story of the Bible. That he takes old things and gets rid of them and brings new things to replace them. What the Bible teaches is that he takes old things and makes the old things new. What I mean by that is that God takes this world that we have known and scarred and marred by sin, that's been frustrated by the fall, that darkness has come over because of man's sin, and he's going to so qualitatively make it different that the only way we can describe it is to call it new. There's already another principle at work in the Bible that is very similar to this. And we know it in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, Jesus, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away and the new things come. We don't believe that verse teaches that when you become a Christian, you cease to be who you once were. That is, you don't get a new you. But we believe that when you're in Christ, when the Holy Spirit has come into your life, qualitatively, he's changed you. He's changed you so much from what you once were, that the only way that you can be described is not the old you, but a new you. But you haven't essently changed. It is, when you become a Christian, you don't all of a sudden start looking better. When you become a Christian, you don't all of a sudden have muscles if you didn't have them before. What he's saying is, is the quality of you radically changes. We know that this is what Augustine was getting at in his confession. St. Augustine before he became a, a, a Christian, lived a fairly debauched life. He, he had many mistresses. He, he, he had an alcohol problem. He really lived as his desires led him without any mediation of the work of the Spirit. And then he hears a message of the gospel. He hears this story from St. Ambrose, and he becomes a follower of Jesus. And when he does, the confessions say his life radically changed. He no longer wanted mistresses. He no longer drank. He no longer lived among the people who were dragging him down. He eventually becomes a, 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 a leader in the church. And while he was on the streets of Rome, some woman, his old mistress, called out to him, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine's response is, but it's not I. What he's saying is, is that I'm so radically changed, the only way you can describe me is new. And that's why Paul calls us a new creation. This world, the whole world, is going to be so qualitatively and quantitatively different from this sin-scarred and marred world, broken place that we know, that it can only be described as a new place. That is, it's going to be good again. Not have good things, but be good. That a moral judgment upon the world will be good again. One of the other things this passage, this verse that we looked at brings out is that the sea will be no more. And because we live in Annapolis, there's a lot of lovers of the sea. That is not how the ancient world saw the sea. They did not see it like those of you who were in the Navy. Or those that you sail boats. It was something to be feared. It metaphorically represented uh, chaos and suffering and loss and death and evil. 
And so when Christ returns, he will finally remove evil and all of its consequences. And so that's why there's going to be no sea in the new earth. We can't imagine it. We can't imagine anything that hasn't been touched by the darkness of evil. Because we have never known a world. We in this room have never known a world where evil was not present and affecting everything about our lives and about everything in creation. But not only is that true about this new world, but God and his people are going to live here. We tend to think that Christians' ultimate destination is heaven. No, heaven's ultimate destination is earth. Doesn't that change the way you see this planet? That ultimately, God has decided that his permanent place of residence, the place that he's going to dwell, the place that he is going to live, is not in a heaven where there's a distance, but on earth where there's an eminence, there's a closeness, there's a proximity to our God. One of Paul's favorite descriptions of the of of heaven, I mean of of the church, is to call it a bride. Look at verse two. And I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. This holy city is the church, and the church is the bride of Christ, and we are being prepared for our bridegroom. And for a permanent, joyous revelry of a party. Now, most Christians have never been to one of those. Right? But we are entitled, because we are sons and daughters of the king, to attend his wedding. Because we are the bride. And that is not going to be a Christian party that just has those little cookies and fake Kool-Aid, but real rich wine and real meat. It's going to be a feast. And we now can live in light of that reality. Right now in this world, seeking and working to make all things new. That means knowing and understanding how sin and evil is present in our world. Not just calling the world having sin and evil, but knowing what it is, and particularly in our own city. It's a, it's a shame sometimes that we don't even know what's going on in our own city. It means seeking to reverse the curse wherever it's possible by applying the gospel implications where we see evil and need. Washington Post ran an article last week that said more people died in 2016 in the United States from opioid addiction than from car accidents and guns combined. I would say that's a problem. If we're talking about legislation on guns, why are we not talking about legislation on opium use? What are we going to do when more people are dying from that than they are from guns and car accidents? There are nearly 200 foster children in Anne Arundel County today. And most of them have nowhere to go because there's not enough foster parents in our county to take them in. 
we see generational poverty in our city. Not just poverty, but people who have lived in that kind of poverty for more than one generation. Some as many as four and five generations. And most children in our community are growing up without both parents in their homes. And if you don't think that's going to have an effect on our city, you're just not aware. Everyone you meet, everyone I meet, is fighting a hitting battle. Everyone has a story. I don't know where this statistic comes from. It just sounds good. 87% of prostitutes have been sexually abused in childhood. They've used drugs to escape the trauma, and many have run away from home or foster care only to be dragged in to prostitution through a pimp. They're not in this lifestyle because they're nymphomaniacs. They're not in, nobody that's in this profession dreams of sleeping with 15 different men. Everyone has got a broken story that needs a savior. Following Jesus means following him into his mission to make all things new. This is what we sing. He comes to make his blessings flow. How far? As far as the curse is found. But not only a new world, but a new home. Look at verse 3. And I have heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This verse is referring to the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, which is the church of God. God is going to dwell with his people. And we're going to live with him. And that means it's going to be better than it was in a garden. I don't want the garden again. It's not nearly as good as what the new earth will be like. Because in the garden, God showed up in the cool of the day. He showed up. He wasn't there always. It's better than the Old Testament temple where we had to be represented in front of God because we couldn't get in front of God. We weren't pure enough. And only he could go after a tremendous purification. But it's even better than the New Testament, where the Holy Spirit dwells in us, but we don't have him physically present. That's coming in the new earth. Revelation 22 says, tell us, tell us because God will dwell with us on earth, there's going to be no need for a sun or a moon or stars nor a temple. Because God is going to be all of those things for us. And we can foreshadow that. We can have prerequisites of that. We can have appetizers of that reality right now. One is in worship itself. God is with us when we worship. When two or three have gathered together in their name, there is God. There's a uniqueness to the presence of God that you can't have on your own. We know that from 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you're the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? You is plural. He's saying together we're a temple with the presence of God. That's a present reality, not just a future hope. Hebrews 10.24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting our meeting together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
Yes, we live out kingdom values individually out there in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our homes. But we also do that together in order to to uh, love and do good deeds. We have to have an object for those things. We do gather to encourage one another. The truth is, the more conservative we become about the truths that the Bible teaches, the more liberal our love will become. You see, we think liberal is bad and conservative is good. But the more conservative we are, the more liberal we'll become with our love. Because if God can save me, then how in the world can I disclude anyone? We gather for worship because we need to be reminded of the story of grace. We need to be reminded because we are too much like Lucy, where every day we have forgotten part of the story. We're daily thirsty for what only God can give. And why verse 6 says, then I have the water, the spring of water of life without payment for those who are thirsty. And the gospel is not just for us. It's the mission of God to take this story to the peoples of the earth, every tribe, people, and tongue. William Temple said this. He was former Archbishop of Canterbury. The church is the only society on earth that exists for the benefit of non-members. I'll say it again. I've said it before. The church is the only society on earth that exists for the benefit of non-members. We know we must minister to those who are already here. That's our calling. That's what Jesus says to Peter. Feed my sheep. Everyone who comes, our responsibility, particularly mine, is to make sure you are fed. But we should never allow ministering to ourselves to keep us from reaching those who are not yet here. Because that's the mission of God. It's not an either or. It's always a both and. Let me just give you an application of hospitality. It was in our uh, uh, congregational assessment that we wanted to be more hospitable. One of the ways, let me encourage you, if you would like to uh, serve in hospitality in our church on Sunday morning to allow uh, members and visitors to feel uh, welcomed and, and find their place, one of the ways to do that is through greeting and ushering in our church. We want everyone who comes here to see your warm, beautiful face. It can't be that I'm the only one who sees it. Everyone needs to see you. And so volunteering to be an usher or or a greeter, male or female, we want to make that possible for you. All you have to do is talk to Van Thompson or Grant Thorpe or Lori Nelson, and they'll get you into the process of greeting and ushering in our church. John Perkins says this about hospitality. It's less about bringing out the silverware in the china and more about actively affirming the dignity of people. If we ignore people, we're not affirming their dignity. Hospitality seeks to turn outsiders into insiders, strangers into friends, friends into family, and family into partners in the gospel. Now, in your mind, which do you think is the hardest to see? 
I think it's family into partners in the gospel. Hospitality removes the whole us versus them mentality. The gospel offers our embrace of all. We want to people to sense and experience the embrace of Jesus through the church. We want broken people to become new people and become the conduits of grace. But this means that our church is going to get messy. Following Jesus and grounding ourselves in the local church go hand in hand. Even when the church is messy, we tend to think that the church is decent and orderly. We've even put that in the book of church order. We Presbyterians love decently and orderly, and we should, because God is a God of order. But that's God. Humans, not so much. There's a church in Georgia, North Georgia, that has on its sign, The Perfect Church. My guess is nobody goes there. Because as soon as you have one person, it's no longer perfect. And the more you bring in, the more stories of the people that come in, the larger the masses that are coming, the messier it becomes. The church doesn't become messy because it brings outsiders in. It already is messy because we are here. We must refuse to hide our brokenness from each other because it lends to thinking that we're perfect And visitors pick up on that, that we think we're perfect. So we might as well have a sign out there, the perfect church. Our church will become messier as we always enter into the mission. And following Jesus into the mission means following Jesus into the mess. Because this is where Jesus lives. Do you remember what Luke 15 starts with? Jesus, why are you hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners? It's not the tax collectors and the sinners who are asking that question. It's the faithful. From time to time, our church is going to seem more messier than it always does. To me, we ought to celebrate that because that means we're involved in the mission. One last, and it's the new life. It won't take long. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the spring of water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have the heritage, this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. I told you when I began this process, before I became a Christian, I I had to explain God as disinterested, uninvolved. It was the only way I could explain my suffering and the suffering of my family as a teenager. I told you that the results of that has made me an anxious person. I told my therapist that I just want to check out and sell shoes. Not because I think it's easy, Bob. I don't think selling is easy. I just think it's easier than this. She said, no, you don't need to check out. You need to check in and face your worst case scenario. Have you ever thought about that? What's the worst thing that can happen to you? We tend to think it's a loss of a loved one, loss of a job, 
loss of relationships. No, there's something far worse. You die and you go to heaven. You see, the worst thing that can happen to you is a resurrection. The worst thing that can happen to you is be with Jesus forever. So nothing that can happen here can threaten that. Nothing can take that away. And therefore, you can face anything that's here. When we go there, it'll be a place with no tears. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Where all the brokenness will be made up for. And suffering will be no more. This story gives us hope. That my old explanation just could not approach. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. That's the same thing it says here. It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. That is, on Good Friday, Jesus says, all that is necessary to start this process to make all things new has begun and it cannot be stopped. But Good Friday is not the last word. Easter is. When it actually begins through the first fruits, Jesus Christ. We don't have a dead Lord like every other religion. Our Lord is risen. He's risen indeed. He offers water of life without payment to the thirsty. We're thirsty. And our inheritance is God himself. It's not a mansion in the sky. It's not jewels and crowns that we're going to throw down. It's simply God. And you are his son. And women, he's not insulting you. He's complimenting you. Because if he had said sons and daughters, he would have talked about the way the ancient world looked at women as a second class. And because he's calling you sons, he's elevating you to the same status of men. And in the ancient world, that is a huge compliment. Therefore, we have a new identity and freedom. We're no longer being identified by what we have done and what has been done to us. Instead, we're being identified by what Christ has done for us and where we're going, which creates the freedom from our past. Freedom to give our lives away to something bigger than ourselves. Let me end with a quote for uh, Aslan's uh, last words in the last battle. Lewis has, Aslan says, Aslan spoke. He no longer looked at them like a lion. But things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them down. And for this, this is the end of the story. And we can most truly say that they have lived a happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the beginning. Now, at last, they're beginning the next chapters of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And that is what shapes our life here, because that is guaranteed then. So no matter what we give our lives to here for the advancement of the mission, that in the end, everybody arrives home with God. And ultimately, we are joined here on a new world where this one is made all new and we live our new lives. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great grand story 
it is good news that what began great quickly became dark only to be rescued by your son. And then we are promised a new heaven and a new earth where we will dwell forever with each other, but mostly with you. And I pray as we eat that, we drink that, Father, that becomes the living water for our souls that we remind each other, encourage each other all the more until we see the day draw near when Jesus returns and makes all things new. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.